knowing that we are folks who value prayer and understand that as an important part of our relationship with God, I always am open to learning more about it and thought that you might appreciate this prayer. It goes like this. So far today, Father, I feel I've done pretty well in honoring you in my actions. I haven't lost my temper, haven't been greedy, grumpy, selfish, or overindulgent. I haven't gossiped or lied. Thank you, Father, for the blessing of your presence and strength. I am really grateful. But in a few minutes, my snooze alarm will go off for the third time. And I'm going to have to get out of bed. And that is when I need a whole lot of help. Crazy as it might sound, I think that that may have originally been offered by someone who who understood the plea of the Apostle Paul as we have heard it in Romans 12, verses 1 through 3, and that individual desperately wanted to be an effective living sacrifice in response to God's mercy in Christ. And that person knew that in our waking moments, out of bed, dealing with people, there is no tougher challenge to our lives. We've been on a journey for several weeks. This morning we are going to wrap up this journey, this series, with what I think it all comes down to. We have asked the question all along the way, what would life look like? Your life, my life, our lives together. How would we live? What would that look like if we, if we lived like we really believe what we say we believe? We've been talking about a life lived in response, proper response, to the love of God. That is where we started, looking closely at what Scripture teaches us about God's love. And we were reminded that God's love is outrageous. God's love makes no sense at all in its extravagance, in its generosity. And yet, it is that love that is the foundational truth of Christian faith, even though All of humanity, created by God for God, had rejected him. He loved them. And he made a way for them to be brought back into the relationship for which they were created. And it was purely a gift. It was all on him. His plan from start to finish, the only thing that's required of any of us is that we accept that gift. We recognize the necessity of it in our lives. We agree, right? It is a gift. We're good with that? Yes? Okay, so tell me this. If Publishers Clearinghouse showed up your door this week with a million-dollar check, would you accept that check? (laughs) Would it change your life? And I guess my question is, do they ever really do that? I mean, I see it advertised on TV, but, you know, I'm always looking out my window. They haven't showed up in years and years. But let's just say that they do. Is that million bucks going to change your life? For most of us, yes, it would. But I suppose it would depend, in part, on how much money you already have. You know, if you're already a millionaire, then it's probably not that big a deal, and you'll just give the million bucks to Appwood Community Church. Right? But for most of us, we're probably not going to do that. And that's why it's so important for us to remember Paul's main point. We've talked about it through the first 11 chapters. We haven't studied it, but just in summary fashion, to remember that Paul's point 
in those 11 chapters leading us up to those three short verses that we've looked at together is that when it comes to status with God, we are all desperately poor. Every human being on the planet is spiritually bankrupt and quite frankly, they are deserving of being left there. But that's not our God. That is not the way he operates. He is outrageous and he is extravagant in his love for lost people. And he sent his perfect son to die in their place. And that's why Paul, at the very end of chapter 11, launches into that amazing doxology that we read together early on. Karen's going to read it for us again this morning. Listen to these words. Paul is just exploding with praise. Amen. Amen. Amazing. I mean, you know, a, a, a quick paraphrase of that might be, who thinks up something like this? Who does something like this? Against the backdrop of of the hopelessness that Paul has painted in 11 chapters. It is the theological treatise of the New Testament. And and his summary is, everyone is lost. He quotes from the prophets and says, there's no one who seeks after God. Everyone is wicked. Uses phrases like worthless. No one is seeking after him. There is no one who chooses good. But God, who is rich in love, has done this amazing thing. With not wanting to sound trite, that is spiritual publisher's clearinghouse has showed up at your door. We've got to see it that way. Because if we see it that way, if we begin to really understand the significance of what Paul has said, then our lives are going to begin to be shaped by those words in Romans 12. But that's not all. Because lost people are suddenly redeemed and set free from the captivity of sin, that doesn't mean that they have the ability on their own to live the life that they were created for. And so God adds to this amazing gift of salvation and gives them His Spirit. The Spirit of God indwells each person who is redeemed and is brought into the family of God. It is the Spirit of God that leads God's children in the life that they now, for the first time, have the ability to to live. And we know that the Spirit is put there to fill us to the brim with the fullness of God revealed to us in the life of Jesus. So, the Spirit then becomes our source of power for living this life that we've been called to live. A life that will have the passion that Jesus had for the glory of God to be known. A life that will have a passion for the values of kingdom of God because that is how God is going to be made known in this world. And this is really important to remember. So let me just say it. The Spirit was not given to us to improve our lives. He wasn't. He was given to us to change our lives. The Spirit was given to us to change our lives, to change our entire perspective on how life should be lived prior to His arrival. We were on the throne of our lives and the Spirit comes in to change that. And even in our redeemed state, 
we still often default to that sin nature mode that wants to make life about me. Am I the only one that struggles with that? The Spirit is in us, brothers and sisters. If you are a child of the living God, you have the power of God in you to convict you of those times when you are making life about yourself, which is a vast majority of the time, and He empowers us to live out the purpose for which we were created. You know the scenario, created for for God and for His glory, to live in fellowship and relationship with Him. Sin breaks that relationship. Humanity spends a good long time bumping around in the darkness trying to figure things out. God says, I'll fix this. Brings His Son to planet Earth to become a sacrifice for us so that through His sacrifice, we can be restored back to that relationship for which we were created. That's amazing. God bringing us back into the relationship for which we were created. That thing that we were created for. What were you created to do? You were created to live in relationship with God and to experience love and intimacy like you have never known and perhaps have looked for in other places. And so, to make life about God becomes the outflow of fulfilling that purpose, to put Him at the center of every thought and activity and dream and conversation. There's nowhere, there's no part of the believer's life that God as creator and savior does not belong. Nowhere. Our lives, we've said, were made to revolve around him, not the other way around. Okay? Which is Paul's point in the text. Romans 12, in view of God's love, Paul says, in view of God's love, which resulted in his mercy-filled rescue of sinful people through his son's death on the cross, what ought to be our response to that kind of love? Paul's answer, lay ourselves on the altar of self-sacrifice every day, as often as it takes Remember, this is done in view of God's mercy, which looks like Jesus hanging on the cross. And the key word is sacrifice. It is surrender. Remember Jesus' words to those who wanted to be his followers? We've looked at these many times over the years at Applewood. Whoever wants to be my disciple must do what? Deny themselves, take up their cross, follow me. That is clearly a death-to-self statement. It's not an option. It is the requirement. To become a follower of Jesus means I have surrendered rights to my life. And the Spirit is given to us to remind us of that decision and to empower us to live like it is true. Okay? So let's stand together. We're going to read Romans 12, 1 to 3 one more time. And then I've added just a few verses from Philippians 2. They'll probably be familiar as well. uh, Because it really kind of brings us to where we need to be in in closing this together. Let's read. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, 
pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. In accordance with the faith, God has distributed to each of you. Okay. And now let's read from uh, Philippians. Paul is writing to the Philippians who are believers living in the Roman Empire. And here's what he has to say. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Okay, go ahead and be seated. That is the challenge of the follower of Christ. Both of those texts talk about thinking. Do not conform to the world's pattern. The world's pattern is not God-centered. The world's pattern is is me-centered. Everything in our culture pushes us toward self-preservation and safety and personal satisfaction and comfort and achievement and fortune and notoriety and future security. And Jesus said, deny yourself. Our culture says you deserve better. Jesus says spend yourself. Our culture says be safe and comfortable. Jesus says die to self and place your life in the hands of the one who loves you for all eternity. And the word that Paul uses here in Romans 12, that word renewed for your minds to be renewed, comes from a word that means change for the better. Change for the better. Paul is saying, change your thinking for the better. And he's assuming now that the Spirit of God indwells you as a believer, you have the ability to think differently, to change your thinking for the better. Because the implication there is what? That the thinking of the culture is not good. And in fact... It's 180 degrees in the opposite direction of kingdom of God thinking. So the Spirit lives in us to motivate and empower that kind of thinking. And that kind of thinking will always result in a life that lays itself on the altar of sacrifice. That's what Paul has been saying. The Spirit will always push us to think more of God and less of self. Why? Because life is about God. And it's not about us. The Spirit lives in us to free us from thinking according to the sin nature. We don't have to put ourselves at the center of our lives. We can put God at the center of life and begin to live that out and allow God to care for us. And so, what will that be like? Honestly, it'll be the most risky thing you've ever done. 
It'll potentially be the most uncomfortable thing you've ever done as you move outside of that safety bubble that our sin nature calls us to stay in. Because what will begin to happen is as you are willing to open your heart and your mind to the Spirit's prompting, the Spirit will begin to push you in ways that involve, clearly involve, the character and the values of Jesus. Because that's what the Spirit is out to do. The Spirit is not out to make me a better me, and He's not out to make you a better you. The Spirit of God is out to change me and to change you into the image of Jesus. So that we might be the presence of Christ in this broken world. The Spirit will always push us to trust God and to live with abandon to self. Imagine. Imagine if we really lived out what we say we believe about God. That's been our question all along. And what do we say we believe? Well, we say that God loves us with a love that is beyond knowing and understanding. We say that God never stops loving us. And because he loves us that way, he watches over us and he takes care of us. And there are no accidents in our lives Because we are his children and he is a wonderful father. He is attentive to everything that goes on. We say that he provides for our needs and we can trust him with that. Provides for our needs, not necessarily our wants, though sometimes those get thrown in as well. We say that he has saved us for eternity and we can face death with confidence because it is a step into his presence forever. We say that we believe all those things. And so if we really believe that stuff, what is it going to look like in our lives? Bottom line is, we're going to cling to us less. And we're going to give of us more. If we are really believers in what we say we believe about God's character and about what He has done for us and who He is in relationship to us and who we are, then we're going to cling less because suddenly care of myself is no longer my problem. It's God's. He signed on for it. And I begin to give of myself more because the more we cling to our lives and all that is important to us, whether it be our time, our reputation, our money, our possessions, our privacy, you fill in the blank. Whatever it is, the more we are clinging to that, the less we are living like Jesus. And the less we live like Jesus, the less we demonstrate to a lost and dying world what we say we believe about God. Because... We must not really believe it. I heard the most amazing story this week of a family who recently decided to invite a friend with a terminal illness to come to live with them until they die. I thought, really? The rationale was This is what God has asked us to do. And we've prayed about it. And God has asked us to open our home to this friend. 
And if this friend comes and lives with us, this friend will likely die in our house. I don't know what you think of that, but my mind immediately goes to all the reasons why they shouldn't do this. Are you kidding? Think of the risks. Think of the fatigue. Admittedly, these people have said there will be caregivers in the home during the day. We will be caregivers at night. What? And did I mention that they have children? Young children. Young children who will watch all that is going on and hear most of what's going on. And something inside of me says, really? Is that wise? And their response has been, the children will be okay. God has called us to this. He will take care of our children too. Whoa! That is just one example of a living sacrifice. Just blows me away. If we really believe all those things about God, the Spirit will push us to follow in those kinds of paths. Not necessarily that scenario, but those kinds of paths to put our beliefs into action through sacrifice for the sake of others. That is, my friends, that is the surest way to demonstrate what we believe about God. And I'm here to tell you that that is the proof to the world that we really do love God and we believe that he loves us the way that we say we believe he does because we are willing to put ourselves into his hands and risk loving others and caring for others. We take the extravagant and wasteful love. I mean, when you think about it, you know, from an economic perspective, God's love is wasteful. It's extravagant. He has poured it onto our lives. He has poured himself into us. And he calls us to do the same for others. And what we have said is that that doesn't result in cranking up our efforts to do more things for God. Please remember that. God doesn't need a thing from us. But what we will do is as we begin to respond and understand the enormity of that love, the generosity of His amazing grace, as we begin to understand through the Spirit's leading in our lives the extravagant and wasteful love of God, what we will do is we will want to show that love to others by living lives that are extravagant and wasteful on them. Okay. We read those words about Jesus that Paul wrote to the Philippians. Have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had, who being in very nature God, 
did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Paul is saying to the Philippian believers, think about yourselves in the same way that Jesus thought about himself. Consider yourselves in the same way that Jesus considered himself. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human being. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Karen, can we put those last words up? You've got them. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Turn to a neighbor and talk to them about this question. What do you think that might have been like for Jesus? What might have been some of the feelings and the emotions he experienced as he served others? You ever thought that? Talk to your neighbor. See what they think. What was that like for Jesus? Made himself nothing and served. Okay, we ready? What do you think? What was it like for Jesus? Steve, what do you think? Yes. Jesus received joy from the Father for doing it. Man, intimacy of relationship with his Father, that's what he was about. Yeah, good point, good point. What else? He did. He did get impatient. God got impatient with Israel. Okay, okay, sure. What else? Good, good, good. Yes. Yes, of course, Gary. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, Jesus just poured himself into what he did. And as Lori said, we, we would be maybe looking for some recognition or, or some appreciation or wondering why you're not working as hard as I am kind of a thing. And the reason I think that it's, it's worth considering this question is because we tend to, as we often do, wrestle with the reality of the incarnation, fully God and fully human. But I think what happens is that when all is said and done, we make Jesus more God than we make him human. And yet, he was fully human. The writer of Hebrews says very clearly that he was, he was tempted in every way that we are, and yet he was without sin. And I think it's safe to say then that, that Jesus never lost sight of the joy of the relationship that he had with his Father, and he never lost sight of the potential for every human being that he spoke with to become that redeemed child of his father. When I get myself all mixed up into the equation, that's what I lose sight of. And perhaps you can relate to that. We get impatient. And in my impatience, I'm going to write you off, doggone it, I'm done. You know... You know, I, you, you've just you've disappointed me one too many times. Living sacrifices don't live lives for themselves. And that, again, is the role of God's Spirit in our lives to empower us and to push us beyond that place that our human nature always takes us back to. If we really want to demonstrate that we love God 
and are amazed at His love and grace in our lives, we will begin to show it in our attitudes and our actions toward others. We will ask for the Spirit's leading in our lives to move us into those areas that perhaps are a little scary and uncomfortable. God didn't call us to be safe and comfortable. He called us to, to trust Him to provide and to care for us. And, and, I, and I know that gets a little, it gets a little weird because we, we have to navigate our daily lives. We have jobs and responsibilities and families. And, and all I would say is we have to go back to the very, very beginning where we started and, and say all of these things are from the Lord. And so we need to ask for the Spirit's wisdom and direction in how to juggle all of these things for His glory. How do I not make my marriage about me? Because I think it should be. You know? How do I not make my children about me? Some of you know my son Jordan is having heart surgery on Wednesday. My first thought that brings me to tears is, what if I lose my son? That's a normal human response. The Spirit calls me to push beyond that and to say, but guy... Your son is a child of the living God. Guy, you are a child, son of the living God. Your father is good. Your father is faithful. Your father is at work, and your father has a plan. And the Spirit pushes me further and, and causes me to think, you know, what if I lose my son? Yeah, that's painful. I can't bear that. How will the Spirit empower me if that should happen to minister to those who are equally or even more affected by something like that? Do you see how our thinking needs to be constantly surrendered to the Spirit of God because we will take all of life's circumstances, we will take all of our relationships, we will take everything that is a part of us and we'll make it about us. And living sacrifices lay themselves on the altar and they make everything about God. His purpose, His plan, His work, His glory, even through the broken and most painful circumstances of our lives. I'm not sure there's a more important text in all of Scripture than this Philippians 2 text for describing exactly what a living sacrifice entails. You know, Paul is speaking, as I mentioned a moment ago, to believers in Rome. And life was not kind to believers in Rome. Don't miss the significance of that use of, the, the, the use of that word servant. Jesus became a servant. Many of the folks in Rome, they were servants. They understood what servants do. Servants did not get to live any way that they wanted to. The life of a servant was to serve. In his book, Your Church is Too Safe, Mark Buchanan shares the following story about a Russian pastor. His name was Father John Sergiev. He says, John was a priest in Kronstadt, Russia, in the mid to late 19th century. That was a time and a place of dirty marketplaces. Imperial Russia was decadent. It was rotting beneath its own weight. The streets were dangerous and rife with poverty and depravity. Crime ran amok. Alcoholism was rampant. Prostitutes crowded the corners and thieves filled the alleyways. There was no safe place. 
So most people who weren't part of that world didn't venture into it. Not so, Father John. His daily practice was to don his robe and descend into the meanest part of the city. He'd walk among the attics and the predators, the prostitutes and the thieves, the orphans and the widows. He would find the most broken and dissolute that he could find. They'd be lying in a gutter or standing on a street corner. He would cup their chin in his hand and lift their face so that they were looking into his eyes and he would say, this life that you are living, this means of survival, this condition in which I find you, this is beneath your dignity. You were created to house the glory of the living God. I love that. Living sacrifices do not live life for themselves. They live for the glory of God. They live to show His glory and to express His love. They face what is unsafe. They face what doesn't make sense. They face what causes them fear. And they push through by the strength of God's Spirit who they know is calling them to do so. We've not not been called to to a safe and comfortable life. You remember that word, witnesses? We're called to be witnesses. Witness means martyr. We've been called to live as sacrifices in response to the amazing mercy and grace of God. I've told my kids since they were little, you are never safer than where you are. If you're a child of the king, you are never safer than where you are. That doesn't give us license to do stupid stuff. I think I'll just run out in front of this truck and see if I'm safe. What it does do is it gives us freedom and it gives us courage to begin to live out kingdom of God values. To begin to love those who are lost and broken. To begin to love those who know nothing about God's love in their lives. Or to to love those who know a lot about God's love and are just at a place where they need someone to step in and to love them, perhaps in a way that they have not been loved before. So as a child of the living and all-powerful and unconditionally loving, absolutely faithful God, how might the Spirit who indwells you be calling you to less safety and comfort and more faithful representation of the Lord Jesus to others in your life? (laughs) I'm resisting the temptation to tell you what that looks like because I have my list. And of course, you know, it's my list and therefore it's important. But what I think I'm finally learning in my old age is that the Spirit of God is so much better at that than I am. I have no idea what an unsafe and a less comfortable life will look like for you. What I am sure of is that it will include sacrifice of yourself. Sacrifice of what is important. Sacrifice of what is dear. For the sake of others, that will be a part of your lives. Because that is what God calls us to. That is what Jesus modeled for us. A living sacrifice 
is someone who lays themselves on the altar as many times a day as it takes, basking in the secure and unconditional and amazing love and grace of God, and then offering themselves as God leads in the lives of other people.